As a son of working-class Dublin, Fintan O'Toole has seen profound changes to Ireland during his lifetime. Growing up in the 1960s, nearly every Irish home had the same three pictures on the wall. You would have had the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and you would have had John F. Kennedy on one side of it, and the Pope on the other side. Fintan explains how Ireland changed from a reactionary backwater into the globalized and well-educated nation it is today. The strange thing that the Irish story tells everybody, I think, is that actually you've got to be honest about yourself. In Italy, John Cahey explores the infrastructure that paved the way for the Roman Empire. You can still walk the Appian Way to literally get in touch with history. And then all of a sudden it turns to the stones that were laid down by the ancient Romans in 312 B.C. Following the steps of Caesar and a personal history of modern Ireland, it's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. In documenting the rapid pace of changes in his lifetime, Fintan O'Toole has written what critics are calling a definitive account of modern Ireland. He joins us in a minute on today's Travel with Rick Steves to explain how Ireland has been reconciling with its past and how it can now focus on its role as a progressive nation with a prosperous future. And later in the hour, we'll look at the ingenuity of the ancient Romans and the roads they built to connect the empire's western and eastern capitals, places you can still walk today. How much has the world you grew up in changed since you were born? Well, Fintan O'Toole was born in a working-class suburb of South Dublin and puts the profound changes of the past couple of generations in Ireland into focus with his book, We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. Fintan has long been a popular columnist for the Irish Times, and he's often called Ireland's leading public intellectual for how he writes about the issues and the people of his country. Fintan joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves to help us better understand how and why Ireland has changed from what some people used to call a reactionary backwater into a progressive-minded European nation with a profound literary and artistic heritage. Fintan, thanks for joining us. It's a real pleasure, Rick, and lovely to be with you and your listeners. Yeah, now, your book is called A Personal History. I mean, you could write a history of Ireland, but you called it a personal history of modern Ireland. Uh, What do you mean by that? I thought, uh, maybe arrogantly, but I thought, yes, to try to tell the story of Ireland in my own lifetime. I was born in 1958, so I'm 65. It's a story of extraordinary transformation, as you mentioned. And I thought there was a way of trying to tell that story as if you didn't know how it's going to end. Hmm. So historians, and I, I love historians. I read a lot of history. I think they're fantastic, you know, but they're looking at archives, you know, and, and they're shaping a story through all these kind of big, big issues. And I thought it might be really interesting for readers if you could take them back into what it felt to be alive at that time. And hopefully that feels a bit different yeah. for people. It feels maybe a little bit more like reading a novel, even though it's all true. And it gives you these wonderful little intimate vignettes that are totally legitimate. They're just as legitimate as some landmark piece of legislation. It's just you rode the first escalator in Dublin when you were five years old. What was that like? You know, Rick, I remember that so vividly. I mean, it seems weird now, but the excitement of an escalator arriving. An escalator. Wow. So you stood on it, and it moved, and it took you up to another floor. And then you could come back down, and you could go back up again. You could go up the wrong way. I I think we nearly got thrown out of the shop in the end because we would would do this all day, you know. 
But it was modernity. You know, it was yeah. this idea of, wow, wow, this is the modern world. And then John Fitzgerald Kennedy, an Irish-American president, comes to Ireland and people go crazy. It's hard to overstate that, Rick, you know. Uh, so Ireland... Ireland was very depressed, to be honest. You know, it, uh -huh. it was a failure. It was economically very poor. We, we'd fought for our independence, but, you know, huge numbers of people were still leaving. And we were just tentatively sort of trying to step into the modern world. And then here you have a product of the tragedy of Irish emigration coming back to us in this glamorous form. I mean, JFK was like a movie star, you know. Yeah. I mean, the people around JFK couldn't think, why is he doing this? You know, yeah. Ireland doesn't matter at all. You know, he'd just been in Berlin giving this famous speech at the Berlin Wall and he comes to Ireland like three days and he's going around. But it was really important for him, actually, you know, that his, his Irish identity was important to him. But for Ireland, it was like, oh, this was our future. You know, there's those wonderful museums that we go to when we travel that recreate a living room from a certain decade, you know. And if you went to one of those museums and you stepped into the, the living room in 1960s, whose pictures would you see on the mantle or hanging in the kitchen? Oh, we, we would have had the pictures. You would have had the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And you would have had John F. Kennedy on one side of it and the Pope on the other side. You know, what we know now about JFK is maybe a bit more complicated, but he really, particularly because of his death, you know, he, he came to seem like a sort of Irish Catholic saint. You know, you can laugh at it and it's a bit ridiculous, but it, it sort of gave Irish people a great confidence boost in a way that, you know, the, the tragedy of our history could have produced a figure like this. It goes, I mean, let's talk a little bit about Ireland's tough economy. I mean, as you mentioned, basically, it's decade after decade of, of hardship and civil war and famine and, and devastating immigration. I mean, the, the population, you, you wrote about it in, in your book, the vanishing Irish problem. Tell us about that in a nutshell. So it's, it's hard to get your head around, Rick. You know, that, that, so in 1840, before the famine, there were 8.5 million people on the island. Yeah. Today, we have 6.5 million. So we still have not recovered demographically. And when I was born, we were at the low point, right? So in the Republic of Ireland, there were just three million people left. Huh. And they were leaving in droves. There was the young people, of course, who were leaving. They were going to America if they could. That's where they wanted to go mm -hmm. for preference. But America, you know, had tightened up on migration during that period. So an awful lot of them were going to England. And you can imagine the sense of humiliation of that, Rick, because the Irish had spent so long trying to free themselves from England. And then what's happening, you know, 30, 35 years after you've become independent, yeah. your young people want to go to England. Most of my father's family, they're in London, they're in Birmingham. That's, that's where they make their lives because that's the only that's place they the can make a life. Were. But it's very humiliating. You know, it, it has a real sense of despair about it because it feels like we tried to be independent and we haven't made it work, you know, and that's a terrible thing for people to start thinking. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fintan O'Toole, and he's written the book We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. Fintan joins us now uh, from Princeton University, where he's a visiting lecturer in Irish letters. He writes a twice-weekly column for the Irish Times, and he's the author of more than two dozen books about Ireland. We have links to his work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. So, Fintan, we had that vanishing Irish problem, but then, as you wrote in your book, uh, something happened, and, and there was kind of a, a revolution economically. 
What was the deal? Yeah, so it's it's very interesting. Revolutions usually happen from the bottom, and this one happened from the top, really. So this is uh, the despair that was around when I was born. That year, a very small group of people, really, you know, on the top of the civil service and one or two politicians say, this has to change because if it doesn't change, it's over. You know, the Irish independence just doesn't work. We, we just can't continue to exist like this. So the big decision is made to open Ireland up to foreign investment, particularly American investment, and to try to, you know, with tax incentives and everything else to say, please come, you know, why bring all the Irish over to America to work in your factory? Why not open up the factory here <laughs> effectively, right? And, and, and this starts to work, you know. So when I'm a little kid, this is really beginning to move. It's not overnight by any means. Right. But this really is the motive that's driving everything through the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Because I remember, like you said, it wasn't overnight. On my first trips around Ireland, I was up in Donegal, and people told me just it's been a devastating time, and, and the kids have just ransacked stuff, and there's nothing for them to do, and it's boring, and it's hopeless, and it, everybody was on the dole. I, I, didn't, I learned the, the word the dole because everybody was talking about the dole. It was depressing in Ireland back then. You know, it, it really was, Rick. And I, I, it's very interesting that you should say that, you know, because as a traveler, it's, it's heart-rending in a way because the place is beautiful, you know. Yeah. And you think, this should be a really wonderful country. I know it. I wanted to have that cheeriness. Yeah. And, you know, we're not naturally uh, depressed people, I think, you know. But I mean, then I, I, I do like that idea where the government gives this tax incentives. It's just kind of common sense. Let's make, let's be everybody else's cash cow. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and let's be frank, the labor was cheap. That was also uh, yeah. an initial attraction. But at least it means you can stay at home. And if, if enough young people can stay at home, it's a sort of uh, virtuous circle. So it had been a vicious circle. If your friends are leaving, if the girl that you have your eye on is leaving, you're going to leave, right? If your friends are staying, you, you also stay. So the, the idea was desperately just try to get something there. And there was something there. I mean, even my little personal example, my dad imported pianos from Europe, the finest pianos in the world. And in the 1970s, the biggest piano factory in Europe was in uh, Western Ireland. Lintner Piano, I think it was called. I didn't know and that. Wow. It, yeah. And it was just, what's a piano factory doing in Ireland? <laughs> well, it's the product of these government policies that made it great to plant your factory there and employ smart, hardworking people there who will work for less money. Absolutely. And, you know, what happens then in 1973 is Ireland gets into the European Union, uh, and that makes it even more attractive, right? So if you're an American company, if you manufacture something in Ireland, it means that you have tariff-free access to the whole European Union, you know, so that makes it, again, more attractive. And basically, this was kicking off what was called the Celtic Tiger economic boom, is that right? Yeah, I mean, that doesn't really happen. So, uh, you know, it's important to emphasize this, this is kind of a slow process, really. So the Celtic yeah. Tiger really doesn't happen until the 1990s, you know, so that's sort of 95, 96. Is it, is it related to that? Is Well, yes. So it's the same policy. And actually, you know, we had a terrible decade. The 80s were awful for, you know, reasons we don't need to go into, but they did stick with it. And they did one really important thing, Rick, you know, which is really simple again, but is invest in education, you know. Yeah. When I was born, Rick, Ireland was the worst educated population in Europe. Huh. And what a disgrace that was for a culture that, you know, has given so much to Europe and to the world. But, you know, my parents didn't get to high school. And most people did not get to high school, never mind university. And now Ireland is the best educated country in Europe. 
is that government policy driven? It's government policy driven. You know, it's just invest in it, you know, make it possible for young people to educate themselves. And if you do that, you transform the society because uh, they're very attractive for investment. Also, they um, they don't they don't put up with as much nonsense. You know, <laughs> they, they want their society to be better. They feel prouder of themselves. They have confidence. And, uh, you know, that's a wonderful transformation I've seen in my time. You know, the, this, the title of your book starts with, We Don't Know Ourselves. We don't know ourselves. Is that a Irish phrase or something? Yeah, it is, Rick. <laughs> and it's one, I thought everybody understood it. I thought I was, it was a very clever pun or double meaning. Yeah. In Ireland, as I discovered, only the Irish say this, but so if you've got a new lawnmower, you know, somebody says to you, how's the new lawnmower? You'll say, oh, we don't know ourselves with the new lawnmower. It's just fantastic. You know, so it kind of contains this thing of everything is great, you know. And I meant that because everything is great, but I also meant the other side of it, right, which is the other meaning of it, which is we've gone through this process of transformation and, and who are we? You know, wow. do we really understand who we are? Fintan O'Toole's book is called We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. It's won high praise from critics in Ireland and the U.S. and was named one of the best books of 2023 by the New York Times, Washington Post, and The Atlantic. It's now out in paperback. Fintan tells us about the legacy of the Troubles in Northern Ireland and the impact of Brexit and the influence of the Catholic Church in Ireland. That's in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. They may have called it the Queen of Roads, but as Roman poet Horace once noted, the Appian Way is best enjoyed when taken slow. We'll look at following the actual footsteps of ancient Romans on the roads they built 2,000 years ago, a little later in the hour ahead. Right now, one of the most respected Irish journalists of our time, Fintan O'Toole, is explaining for us how much Ireland has changed in recent years and why. Okay, Fintan, we've been talking about this sort of background of, of Ireland, and I've been going to Ireland for decades, and I just get this sense of a very strong national identity. Uh, the main boulevard historically in, in Dublin seems to be O'Connell Street, named after one of your great founding politicians, it, the street is just, it's got a big meridian, and it's one great Irish patriot after another, working all the way up to the Garden of Remembrance, where you guys won your independence. And it's an inspirational stroll, even if you don't know Irish history, to just gain a respect for how hard-fought your independence is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's a difficult story, of course, you know, because it's a story of... Uh, trying and failing, you know, for so long uh, to actually establish an Irish independent state. Um, you know, Ireland was never independent, really, as a state. So even if you go back, you know, way into the past, we had a variety of little kingdoms, you know. that One of the reasons I suppose they were conquered was because the Irish never actually got together to form a single kingdom. So in a way, there's never been a single Irish state on the island, you know. And and so the struggle to create this, you know, went through lots of phases, sometimes very violent, sometimes just very clever parliamentary tactics and, uh, you know, trying every kind of different way of trying to achieve Irish independence. And it was achieved. I mean, we're, we're just over 100 years now since uh, the Irish state I was going to say established. it's 100 years, isn't it? It's, and it's been, it hasn't been a, a cakewalk since then. But getting back to that, that boulevard and this stroll where we celebrate how, how Ireland finally did get it together, you've got one modern monument there. <laughs> and it's just, it's called the spike, I think. And it's just like, it's as tall as a skyscraper, but it's just a, it's shaped like my mechanical pencil, basically. And it goes right up into the sky. And I understand that is sitting on 
what was a very proud English monument that some feisty patriots decided to blow up. Yeah, you know, like when I was a kid, when I was a little kid, there was this thing called Nelson's Pillar. Right. And Nelson was Admiral Nelson. He was a great British naval hero from the beginning of the 19th century. And, you know, when he died, the British decided that there should be monuments to him all over the United Kingdom. And, of course, the biggest one had to be in the most uh, rebellious place, <laughs> which was, which was Dublin. Go. So they had this huge pillar uh, with Nelson on top. Um, and actually, the pillar was kind of beautiful, but they should have just replaced Nelson. They should have, you know, taken him down, put somebody else up. But the IRA, which was the sort of militant nationalist group in 1966, decided to blow it up. Uh, but I, I remember going in, you know, and, and seeing this huge stone pillar cut off halfway up and rock granites everywhere and Nelson's head, <laughs> you know, this huge head sort of lying there. Admiral Nelson. I mean, in England, Admiral that would Nelson just be great. such a heartbreak. But in Ireland, you kind of go, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But um, to me, it's just this indomitable, is that the word, um, irrepressible national spirit. I just think there's this, there's this tribal Ireland that, that even survives in the United States. Because you have that diaspora where there's, what, 30 million honorary Irish people in the United States. Absolutely. You know, and it's become, I think, almost more important. Uh, you know, it, it has its downsides. <laughs> Some of it, you know, tribalism can be dangerous. But I think the, the good side of the Irish thing is that uh, people get very worried about identity, you know, and, and are we going to lose our identity? And look at what's happened to Ireland. Look at all the tragedies, the famines, the disruptions, the poverty, the mass emigration. And look at where we are. Are we less Irish? No. <laughs> you know, it's a very strong pulse that just keeps coming back. And it tells us that actually, you know, we can deal with an awful lot of change yeah. and, and still be who we are. You know, we, we have to be who we are now. We can't, you can't, it's not nostalgia or going backwards, you know, but it's, it's actually saying, you know what, we still feel this kind of relationship to each other, to our history, to our culture. I can almost imagine some of the diaspora reminds you because they've left the old country and they're going to, if you're not kind of uh, flying that Irish flag properly, they'll dream up a festival. Let's call it St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> I guess that's an American creation, isn't it? St. Patrick's Day is an American creation, yeah. <laughs> and so is Riverdance. And so, you know, oh, I mean, yeah. you know, all these things that uh, feed back in, you know, and, and that to me is wonderful. You know, I've got grandkids now, you know, and, and I feel those grandkids are going to live in a very different country, very different mm -hmm. world. Yeah. But are they still going to feel that sense of identification with Ireland wherever they are? Absolutely they are. I feel really confident about that. I, I think it's a culture that just will, will survive like that. Fintan O'Toole is often referred to as Ireland's leading public intellectual for how he writes about its issues and people. He's our special guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Fintan chronicles the changes to Irish society since his birth in Dublin in 1958 in his book called We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. He also writes a column twice a week for the Irish Times. Fintan is a visiting professor in Irish letters at Princeton University in New Jersey, where he's joining us from their studios. We have links to his work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Fintan, let's, I, I want to touch on uh, the troubles. We don't, we don't need to get into what sure. exactly this blow by blow about the troubles, but I feel like what a challenge that Ireland had and what a success story. Uh, can you define just in a couple of sentences, what were the troubles? So the Troubles started in 1968 in Northern Ireland. So they're very much a phenomenon of that part of Ireland that stayed in the United Kingdom. 
You had a minority, largely Catholic, which did not want to be in the United Kingdom. You had a majority, largely Protestant, who did want to be in the United Kingdom. So you had this really fundamental clash of identity. The Catholic minority had been mistreated, really, by the Protestant governments that had controlled Northern Ireland uh, since 1922. And there was a rising generation of people who were inspired by the civil rights movements in America, you know, who were protesting. This all kind of got more and more antagonistic. And very sadly, it descended into violence and it descended into paramilitary violence. You had the IRA mm. on the one side, you had loyalist paramilitaries on the other side, you had the British Army. So the terrible, terrible thing about it was that nobody thought in 1968 that this could last for very long. It just it seemed like, yeah, we might have a sort of terrible bloodletting, but it'll be over in a couple of years lasted for 30 years. And during that period, there was a lot of despair because it felt like, you know, you killed one of my my people, we were going to kill one of yours. That sort of tit-for-tat logic right. that just kind of is self-generating and just goes on and on and on. And as you say, it was one of the great achievements, actually, not just of Ireland, but to be fair, of British governments, of America. You know, a lot of people helped out because there was this great goodwill towards Ireland, actually, internationally. And in 1998, we got the peace deal, which really was remarkable, uh, you know, which stopped the violence, disarmed paramilitary organizations, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do, and tried to create new institutions and, and new ways of doing things. Has it been 100% successful? No. Still a lot of problems. Are there still divisions? Absolutely. But you have a whole generation of people now who've grown up in Northern Ireland yeah. in peace. Yeah. And able to think about their own futures and their own identities without that horrible pressure of violence. And, and Irish America was very important in that process, you know, really encouraging. It was an Irish American, George Mitchell, who wonderful, wonderful man who, who chaired those peace talks, still alive, deserves every honor. And, and, you know, Irish people feel just great, great affection for him and, and gratitude. It's an inspiration to other countries that are dealing with sectarian violence. I hope it's a lesson for generations and centuries later. Yeah, I mean, I hope it is an inspiration because actually what we came up with, you know, is the fact that you have to live with people who are different from you. You know, That's kind you, of you, you know in the end, you can't get what you want, but you can get what you can live with. You can get what's better than yeah. this endless cycle of violence. And, and you will have people still marching in Orange Day parades teaching their children how to hate. I mean, I, I can't believe in, in Portrush, just in recent times, I was there for an Orange Day march and up in the north of Ireland, and there are still people that are the kind of hateful, angry people that are afraid of this reality that we got to live together. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's, there's people whose status, and this is on both sides in different ways, but there's people yeah. whose status is tied up with conflict and, and with, with not being them, yeah. and they have an investment in that. But as you know from being there, if you talk to the vast majority of people under 40, they've lived in a different world, you know, and they have very different kinds of aspirations. And it's it's good. I'm not saying all the problems are over no. at all, you know, but it is transformed. It is a vastly better place than it used to be. And it didn't just happen. There were leaders, yeah. there were uh, society leaders, there were older people that organized things for younger people. Uh, there was initiatives to get the Protestant kids and the Catholic kids to go to summer camp together so they could shed some of their parents' baggage. And I, it's a fascinating story and, and something that's worth reading more. And I'm thankful that that's a, an important part of your book. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fintan O'Toole, skimming the surface of the fascinating story of Ireland that Fintan writes about in his book, We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. And Fintan, we've just got a couple minutes left, and can you just 
comment on the church and how its role and power has changed dramatically in your lifetime, and then Brexit. And what is the impact of that that you see on Ireland's future? So in relation to the church, it's important to say this is not really about faith or religion, you know, which I have a huge respect for. It's about what happens to an institution that has too much power. And what happened to the church in Ireland was because Irish identity was the identity of the oppressed, part of that oppression was religious. So people put a huge amount of their political identity into being Catholic. And that meant that the church had this overweening power, which it used very... I think abusively, really, we had these terrible institutions where women were locked away, a lot of abuse of children. And all of this starts to unravel, really, at the beginning of this century. And then when it unravels, it unravels very, very rapidly. So, you know, we're in a new situation where there is no longer this package, you know, that Irish national identity equals Catholicism. And to me, that's very liberating. And I think it might also be very liberating for the church. It's not good for religion, it seems to me, to be totally tied up with a political identity. And the other thing that's going on at the same time is that uh, is Brexit, as you mentioned, you know, has has also changed things for Ireland because it, it means that, um, I mean, I'm sad about Brexit. I think most Irish people were. We, we don't want to see Britain in trouble. But it does mean... If, just think about it like this, Rick. If you're an American company and you're thinking of investing in an English-speaking place in Europe, you know, which has access to the European market, where are you going to go? I mean, you're going to go to Ireland. You know, Ireland now has this very special place as the English-speaking country within the European Union. So between, you know, I think opening up our identity and, and it not being so sectarian anymore and also, you know, having this kind of confidence that actually Ireland has a lot of soft power, you know, I think Putting those two things together make me feel that Ireland's a pretty good place to be and it's it's on an upward trajectory, I think. It's not going to be completely smooth. Right. But the the future, to me, looks pretty decent in Ireland. And Fintan, this, this relates to this dream of having a, a truly united island of Ireland. And with Brexit, well, first of all, I remember as a kid driving from North Ireland to the Republic and from the Republic to North Ireland – a, note, a dramatic difference just in the quality of the roads. We crossed oh, the yeah. border into the Republic and you're like going into a developing country. You're going into an, a poor country. And if I lived in this part of Britain, Northern Ireland, I would be afraid to suddenly be ruled by Dublin. But in the generation since then, the economy is such that you can actually flip-flop it now. Ireland is the future economically from a North Ireland perspective and that probably makes unification a little less scary for people in the north. Do you see it yeah. that way? I think that's very well put. You know, I have no doubt that it, you know, 30, 40 years ago, if I were a Protestant in Northern Ireland and I was looking to the south, I mean, leave everything aside about identity and right. religion. I yeah. just would have said, you know, exactly as you say, I don't want to be in this backwater place. You know? Exactly. Whereas now, you know, you're looking at a very progressive society, a society that isn't dominated by one religion anymore, is very open and tolerant, but also is very prosperous. You and know? compared to Britain, Britain's not doing as well as, as the Republic of Ireland in a lot of ways. And the... Union, the United Kingdom, the the non-English components of that voted in favor of sticking with the European Union. And I think looking forward, we might see the Scottish people demand another referendum on independence. And if that happens, what's to keep Northern Ireland from reconsidering joining up with Dublin? 
Yes, uh, you know, I don't think, and I don't, in fact, want anything to happen very suddenly. Right. You know, because these are these are very delicate historic moments, and you want them to be well prepared, and you want you want everybody to feel as comfortable as possible with this kind of change. But I think it's very difficult to look at it objectively and not to say we know what the direction of travel is here, right? And the direction of travel is towards Irish unification, yeah. Yeah. and it's it's demographic. You know the way the way the population is shifting. It's economic. It's political, as you say. The UK itself as an entity is really very much in doubt. And I think the key thing for us now here is to start talking about it in an open, generous, honest way, um, and and try to recognise it can't just be a case of me from the south of Ireland, in, you know, mm-hmm. saying I'm going to take over you in the north. You know, it it has to be. Let's do something new. Let's let's try and get the best out of our different traditions. We don't want to talk about it in a triumphalist way no. or an aggressive way. Right. But I think we do need to talk about it because it's on the horizon and it's something I think we're moving towards. And I think it's something that ultimately, if we do it properly, could be a sort of reconciliation of all that history. Oh, that's a. Be- it'd be a beautiful way to yeah. to kind of tie a bow on the whole story, wouldn't it? I mean, that's that's wishful thinking. Perhaps or not going to be that simple, but it is something to hope for. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Fintan O'Toole. His book is We Don't Know Ourselves: A Personal History of Modern Ireland. I'd like to close just with a thought from you about a reviewer's comment on your book, Fintan. A reviewer from the Boston Globe says your book tells the story of a country that was once so fixated on maintaining an idealized vision of its past that it almost gave up on the prospect of a better future. I think that's a brilliant way of putting it. It's a great summary of, of what I hope I've tried to get at in, in the book. You know, the strange thing that the Irish story tells everybody, I think, is that actually you've got to be honest about yourself. You know, you can't look in a sort of distorting mirror and say we're the best people ever, we're the most Catholic people ever, whatever it is. You know, you, you have to be proud enough of your own identity to accept it as it really is. And I think... That's what we've done. Okay, so let's take that then for the takeaway of your book. What can we as people of the United States learn from the story that you tell of your country? I think, first of all, you can learn that politics can work. I think there's a despair in America at the moment for very obvious reasons about whether politics can work. Yes, it can. It can transform people's lives. My life is vastly better now at the age of 65, you know, than I could have imagined it would have been 30, 40, 50 years ago. My kids' lives are better. My grandkids' lives are better. And it's because people made the leap of being honest about themselves and what was good and what was bad about their country and also tried to come to some sort of reconciliation, you know, actually think about the fact that actually, you know what, uh, we don't want to live in tribes we do want to live as a country with our own identity. And I think if you can rediscover that confidence in the possibility of making life better for everybody, then it can happen. That's a beautiful takeaway from your book. Fintan O'Toole, thank you so much for sharing with us a thoughtful insight into your beautiful Emerald Isle. It's been an absolute pleasure, Rick, and uh, I hope some of your listeners at least get to Ireland and get to enjoy it. I want to get to Ireland and have a Guinness with you and talk more <laughs> politics. It'll be a pleasure. Many days you have lingered around my cabin door. Oh, hard times come again no more. Fintan O'Toole's latest book was released in the U.S. as We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. His earlier book, A History of Ireland in a Hundred Objects, explains the stories behind the artifacts that are on display at the National Museum of Ireland. 
You can hear more from our conversation with Vinton about the Great Famine. It's in an extra to today's show on our website at ricksteves.com radio. Up next, a journalist from Salt Lake City traces the ancient routes that took travelers from Rome all the way to today's Istanbul. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Merhaba, ben Lale Sürmen Aran. İstanbul, Türkiye'de yaşıyorum ve Rick Steves'le birlikte seyahat ediyorum. Now I'm going to give you the English translation of what I just said. I am Lale Sürmen Aran from Istanbul, Turkey and I travel with Rick Steves. In case you want to hear it once more, the Turkish form of it. Ben Lale Sürmen Aran, İstanbul, Türkiye'denim ve Rick Steves'le seyahat ediyorum. They say all roads lead to Rome. But if you were a Roman, all roads started in Rome. The wide and straight roads the Romans were famous for began as a way to connect with the empire's eastern capital. Eventually, the Romans built roads that fanned out as far as Britain and Syria. Sections of many of these roads still exist today with their original paving stones. John Cahey spent three months tracing the paths of three ancient roads that connected Rome with the city we now know of as Istanbul. He describes the experience of traveling to find these ancient routes in his new book called Following Caesar, From Rome to Constantinople, the Pathways that Planted the Seeds of Empire. Hey, John, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, I can imagine somebody who loves travel and loves history to be sort of inspired by actually walking on those same stones that people like Julius Caesar and Augustus and Cicero and even St. Peter and St. Paul walked on 2,000 or so years ago. What was that like for you? Do you have any special memories of just actually walking on those same stones? Well, it started for me uh, in Rome itself, in the park where they preserved some of the earliest sections of that road. And I remember walking on a paved, modern paved road, and then all of a sudden it turns to the stones that were laid down by the ancient Romans in 312 B.C., That had a real impact. I walked a couple of miles along that stretch, past some monuments and so forth, and uh, it really started sinking in as to what the undertaking was all that time ago. Oh, yeah. You could even see the ruts in the road that were made by the, the carriages, couldn't you, the wheels? Yes. You know, a lot of the stones are missing because they were used in construction of homes through the Middle Ages and so forth, and even in the later Roman Empire. Hmm. And... You can still walk along the sides and so forth. There's well-worn pathways. Now, that's the uh, Via Apia, right? The Apian Way? The Apian Way, yes. The queen of all roads, according to the Romans, yes. Now, John, your book shares your experience as you followed the ancient Apian Way and also the the Via Ignatia, a thousand miles from Rome to Istanbul. Now, of Mm -hmm. course, that was from the western capital of the Roman Empire to the eastern capital, back 17, 1800 years ago when, when the Roman Empire split and uh, Istanbul was called Constantinople. Now, I love the map you have in your book with West at the top, and it's a dramatic dive. It looks like from Rome to Brindisi, across the Adriatic Sea, and then, you know, landing in about Albania, and then going on to Istanbul, where, where Europe meets Asia. I, I just think it's cool the way you put that map in your book. You messed up the Rome, I mean the North. North's not at the top, so it's like like a straight dive. It's just like a faucet that goes from western to eastern capitals of the empire. When you look at that map, what do you see? You can see where you have to go. Uh, you can see the direction that you're in geographically. 
and uh, my map maker is the one who turned it on its ear a little bit to make everything so that it can fit. You see all of these ancient places with modern names, and it takes you along that route. And then when you get to those places, you can find, in most cases, uh, portions of that ancient road, yeah. either underneath the highway or uh, to the side or through a farmer's field or along a riverbank or over ancient bridges. It's all there. You just have to seek them out. Now, tell us about the engineering, John, because I, I understand Romans were so enamored by engineering. If, if a Roman tourist came to the United States today, they might want to see you know, the Golden Gate Bridge and a big freeway interchange rather than paintings in a museum just because they loved the engineering. And it was sort of marvelous engineering to do 50,000 miles of roads 2,000 years ago to lace together this, this empire. What do you know about the engineering behind these roads? Well, you can see the sections coming out of Rome, and, and there's plenty of uh, charts and so forth that you can look at in various books that shows the different levels and the different layers and how they piled one level on top of another to solidify. They made it wide enough, about 20 feet wide, roughly, for an army to be able to march down these roads and uh, the wagons that followed them and so forth. Hmm. They kept the center part primarily for the horses and for the wagons, and the soldiers could march also along the sides in areas that I think the name sidewalks uh, were, were uh, yeah. derived from. Yeah. And you also have, uh, there was a high part in the road so that the rainwater would run off. Hence, we have our term highway. That all sort of evolved from that time frame. But there are numerous layers beneath yeah. that the engineers built, and they used all kinds of ancient surveying kind of equipment to keep it straight. I understand Roman engineers liked a straight road. I mean, if you look at a road today anywhere in where the Roman Empire used to be, if it's a very straight road in the middle of the countryside, it's probably built on top of the original Roman road. Right. And if you, you go south of Rome and heading down toward Terracina, which is on the coast, that is the straightest part with a modern highway over it that uh, you can see. Even in England, John, when I'm driving around the Cotswold Villages, if you come upon a straight road, you read a little bit about it, and sure enough, that was a 2,000-year-old Roman road. Hey, That's you know, right. in your book, you talked about how Caesar borrowed lots of money to, to finalize the Apian Way, and as you mentioned, it was used by the military. Was it primarily a, an investment in defense so the, the army could move quickly from one battle scene to another, or was it more for trade? It started out as military roads, and a lot of people could not use them because uh, they weren't military over time, commercial travelers could use it to haul goods from village to village. But initially, Via Appia and the Via Ignacia were military roads, okay. and uh, they were also toll roads. That's how they were able to maintain these roads were people paying tolls. And it was the Roman army that built a lot of the earliest roads, along with some slave help from peoples that they conquered. If you're building 50,000 miles of roads way back then, you must have had access to virtually free labor in the army or, or slave labor. John Cahey enjoys exploring the back roads of Italy, and he's helping us walk in the footsteps of Caesar right now on Travel with Rick Steves. John was a reporter for 22 years at the Salt Lake Tribune and is joining us from the studios of KUER. His book, Following Caesar from Rome to Constantinople, The Pathways That Planted the Seeds of Empire, is due to be released next week. <laughs> 
His other titles on Italy include Hidden Tuscany, Sicilian Splendors, and Venice Against the Sea. His website is johncahey.com, spelled K-E-A-H-E-Y. John, when I read through your book, I'm reminded it's a look at 2,000-year-old Roman culture and engineering and accomplishments and the great empire, but it's also a travel book about taking this road today. And, of course, originally, the road, it's got two names and there's different variations of it, but essentially it's, it's a road from Rome to Constantinople, from the capital of the Western Empire to the capital of the Eastern Empire. And uh, it's complicated, but in the 300s, in the 4th century, uh, the way I understand it, Rome was falling, and the emperor in Rome decided, I'm getting out of here, and he just retreated to a, a more stable and easy-to-rule part of the empire, and he established the eastern part of the Roman Empire, which ultimately became the Byzantine Empire. And while Rome fell in the west, it lived on in the east for another thousand years or so. Is that a fair distillation of the story of why we got east and west Rome? That's a great summary. Uh, of course, we know that Constantine converted, to, eventually converted to Christianity, but he did not make it the state religion of Rome. But anyway, he gave Rome over to the church and went east to Byzantium, and it was later in his life, uh, near his death, that they decided to name it Constantinople. Right. Now, when you travel it today, take us along that route. Is it worth traveling today, or, or do you have to be some kind of a history wonk to understand how exciting it is? Well, if somebody wants to travel the route, like you've pointed out, it's a thousand mile distance, uh, essentially, and you're on modern roads that either cover or are parallel to or are nearby the ancient route. Uh, You can stop along the way and see portions of that ancient route that have been preserved. But the idea is to leave Rome, head south, end up in in a wonderful little place called Terracina. That goes down to the coast, and then you can loop through the mountains in a big circle and then end up back in the coast again and go as far as a village called uh, Serastina. And it doesn't exist anymore. It's in a modern town called Monte Dragone. And from there you go inland to Capua, where Spartacus trained in the great amphitheater there and began his slave revolt. And you go from there to uh, Benevento and then end up in Brindisium, which is uh, Brindisi today, or Brindisi, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And that's the end of the Via Appia. Okay, so the only place name I recognize there is Brindisi. From Rome to Brindisi, there's 400 miles. It's mm-hmm. like the first ancient highway, the Via Appia. Uh, we talked already about the grand part of the Via Appia that everybody sees. You can bicycle there from downtown Rome. And it's a wonderful hike. It's a wonderful day trip. It's a beautiful, beautiful park that sort of celebrates the, the beginning of this road. And you get a sense of the engineering, and you walk on those stones you know, the, the the voyage from Brindisi over to uh, essentially where Albania is, that must have been uh, a fairly busy sea route because it was part of the, the freeway from Rome to Istanbul. Once you landed over there uh, in the Balkan Peninsula, it's a 1,000 miles, and you get to Istanbul. Now, it didn't have the mighty walls it has today because that was built after the Romans came. But what was it like when uh, that road arrived and when the emperor arrived in Istanbul? What was Istanbul like when it became the eastern capital of Rome? Well, you have uh, the Golden Gate that was uh, built at that time, and it's about 10 miles, I would say, 
outside of the city, and the road via Ignacia went through that golden gate, and great emperors would arrive in great trains and majesty and so forth and so on, and great processions, and they would follow roads that still exist into Byzantium, Constantinople, and uh, whichever time period. Right. And I guess it's important to note that it has three names, right? It was first Byzantium, and then it was named after the Roman emperor, Constantinople, and then it became Istanbul when the Muslims took over much, much later. No, it became, uh, quite frankly, it became, um, it was Constantinople through the Muslim time. It didn't become Istanbul until the 1920s or 1930s. Oh, really? Okay. Under under Ataturk. Wow, so it's had quite a a multi-layered history. Mm Mm-hmm. And the road ends, as all roads that came through uh, in that part of Turkey, the Eastern Empire, the roads ended at one point just by the Hagia Sophia, uh, which is now a Muslim church. And it ended at a place that was a, uh, at one time, I would love to have been able to see it hundreds of years ago, where they call it the Million Stone, and that's with one L, M-I-L-I-O-N. It has nothing to do with the number million. It was like a marker uh, where all the roads ended. It's kind of like a zero-mile point or something. It was a zero marker. And I was standing there just a couple weeks ago, John, and you're surrounded by Hagia Sophia, which it was a church first and then a mosque, and it was the greatest church in Christendom for 400 years or something, Mm -hmm. and... um, what an amazing accomplishment. That was actually ancient Roman architecture. You got the Hippodrome, the big stadium there, just like you got the Circus Maximus in Rome, and you got your Egyptian obelisks and all of that. And uh, right there by the Million Stone, you can go downstairs into a cistern. And it was just a awe-inspiring reminder of that Roman engineering incorporated into ancient Istanbul as they had to have a water system for their capital city. Uh, a lot of those sites are, are below ground level today, reminding us that it's been 1,700 years since uh, they were built, and that's a lot of history and a lot of dust and a lot of rubble from fires and invasions, and it all stacks up over time. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with John Cahey, and John's book is called From Rome to Constantinople, The Pathways That Planted the Seeds of Empire. John, out of this amazing journey that you took, can you just share with us which moment on that on that road from Rome to Constantinople, present-day Istanbul, what little moment there had the biggest impression on you that, that you enjoyed including in your book? I met a tour guide in uh, Brindisi. The first day I was with him, I paid him for a couple of hours to show me around and get acquainted and that kind of thing. And then when he found out what I was interested in, he is an archaeologist by training. And he knows everything there is to know about his city and around his city. Quite frankly, there were two great moments, and they were with him. And uh, he took me to a little town that's between Toronto back in the day, Taranto today. He took me to this little town between Taranto and uh, Brindisi, and uh, it's, it's now a ruin. He had a friend who was the archaeologist there. And they opened the gates for us. We walked in and there was a section of the Via Appia that had just been uncovered and, and rediscovered a month before. To sit there and look at that and take photographs and uh, to read about it and to talk to the archaeologists about it and so forth was a very high point on the trip. 
The second high point on the trip was we went north from Brindisi, and there was the Via Triana that came down from Bari, and there are very few sections of that road that are available to see, but he turned into a farmer's field, and there was this big mound of earth, and there were stones showing out from around this mound, and this was a bridge, the footing of a bridge that had once crossed a great river that does not exist anymore. It's not on the register. Archaeologists know about it, but there's no protection of it. A farmer could come in. If he wants another few acres in his field, he could tear it all down, and there would be no repercussions. And to stand on those stones, that was the Via Triana, which was built probably 300, 400 years after the death of Caesar. That was a quite a quite a moment. And to look at that river, what used to be a river, is now a, sort of a valley that's growing crops and so forth. But it was a major river that went inland hmm. from the Adriatic Sea. You know, it's a good reminder that there's a lot that went on 2,000 years ago that we can hardly, it's hard to overestimate what the Romans did from an engineering point of view. And in so many ways, dirt is the great preserver. Boy, I don't know about you, but I would imagine... It's fun with with your breadth of understanding of this to just fantasize about all the wonders that lie intact to this day underneath that covering of dirt that over time will be excavated, studied, and shared with all of us curious travelers. I would also recommend that on the other side of the Adriatic that people go to North Macedonia. It's a new nation. It's only existed under that name for three or four years. And it was once part of uh, Yugoslavia. There's a section of the Via Ignatia that was discovered fairly recently that I I was led up to and sat on, and that was also a great moment. But North Macedonia and Lake Okrid are are wonderful, wonderful places to be. Lake Okrid had a special resonance with me when I was exploring that part of Macedonia. And... Mm -hmm. uh, I just didn't realize that was that has an ancient Roman connection also. So it's a beautiful lake to check out. It's a fascinating culture of former Yugoslavia. And as you mentioned, it's a chance to gain a better appreciation of an ancient Roman road. And I'm sure you drove around on that road around the lake where Via Ignazio is probably sitting under. And probably, like so many times, drove right over something I didn't even know was down there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with John Cahey. And John... Uh, congratulations on your book, Following Caesar, From Rome to Constantinople, The Pathways That Planted the Seeds of Empire, and best wishes in your future writing and travels. Well, thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kazmura Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Andrew Wakeling and Sherry Court upload the shows to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate promotions, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Look at Rick's checklist for what to pack in your suitcase and share tips with fellow travelers. It's part of our online travel forum that you'll find at ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. I've found that if you equip yourself with good information and expect yourself to travel smart, you can. And that's why the Rick Steves guidebooks are consistently the best-selling series of guides to Europe. Pick up the latest edition at your favorite bookseller or at ricksteves.com.